Well, John, we are back with another episode of Out of the Main. And if you were paying attention at all last week, probably not, you'll you'll recall that we sort of drifted outside of the safe harbors of Yacht Rock and into some near misses. Yeah, you get to use your favorite line today. What was that? We're going to need a bigger boat, and this time you're really going to meet it. I do, you're right, because we have more than one guest. We have three guests. Um, and this is going to be an interesting conversation because we are going to start with the Yacht Rock era, and we are going to drift just outside of it into the mid-'80s, which we right. haven't done a ton of yet, but uh, this will be good. So, and so let's bring in our guests, if you don't mind. I'm sick of talking to you. Do it. So with us today are people that, for many of our Yacht Rockers, will need no introduction, but we'll introduce them individually and then talk about them as a group. So please welcome to the podcast, everyone. We have Frankie Previtt. We have John DiNicola, and we have Stacy Weidlitz. Gentlemen, welcome to the program. Good to be here. Ahoy. Ahoy. Ahoy it is. <laughs> right. So we are we are on five different boats. So as you you know, we record on Zoom, so I'm looking all over the place. Um, but we're going to bring this all together in one happy bow by the time we're done, if that works for everyone. Um, well, John Nixon, that is, yeah. uh, I thought we would start being a yacht. Yacht Rock podcast, where it only makes sense to turn the clock in our Wayback Machines yep. to the late 70s, and I think our core audience, the hardcore Yacht Rockers, are going to be extremely familiar with Frankie and the Knockouts, creators of the song, Sweetheart. So, so I know that two of you, especially Frankie, right? That's the dead giveaway. But I believe John <laughs> DiNicola, you were also part of Frankie and the Knockouts at one point. So, guys, whoever wants to take it, why don't we start with you, Frankie? Take us back to when you guys got discovered and what it was like. This wasn't called the Yacht Rock scene back then, obviously. We're retroactively applying that term. But just being in this session era, L.A., the recording, touring in the late 70s, how did you guys get your break Your break as Frankie? Um, you know, it started really back when I was in a band called Bull Angus earlier in the 70s. And um, that band would tour with Rod Stewart and Deep Purple. It was more of a heavier rock band. And um, that band dissolved after about three albums on Mercury Records. And I decided to be an R&B singer. I moved back home, started taking voice lessons. And um, I signed to Buddha Records as an R&B singer. So Tony Camillo, who was uh, produced Midnight Train to Georgia, uh, Grammy Award-winning producer, became my producer on Buddha Records. And I was finding out that, you know, anytime I wrote anything rock and roll, it would go in Tony's draw. If I write an R&B song, we re- record it. And I wasn't really getting the vibe of the rock element that I was used to. So I decided that I would, uh, you know, kind of leave the, that R&B scene and maybe do something like a blue-eyed soul rock and roll band. And so the guitar player from Bull Angus, Billy Elworthy, and I, uh, Billy moved in with me in New Brunswick, New Jersey, and we started writing songs. And I was selling cars out of my driveway to make money to stay alive, to take my voice lessons and pay my rent. And so um, 
I had a bunch of songs that I met a guy named Bert Padel, who was called the accountant of the stars, uh, Madonna, just tons of uh, different stars. And he did in three weeks what I couldn't do in three years. He turned my tape on to this guy named Jimmy Einer. Jimmy Einer was Millennium Records and Jimmy produced the Raspberries and John Lennon and Three Dog Night and uh, Grand Funk Railroad and tons of bands. And he heard something in my voice that um, was reminiscent to what he was in a band earlier called the Earls back in the 60s. So that was like a doo-wop band. Um, so he signed me, he said, listen, if you can write three more songs as good as these songs, I'll give you a deal. So I went back to Billy and we added a keyboard player, Blake Levinson, and we wrote a bunch more songs and I got the deal. So the day uh, or two before we were going in the studio, I brought in a song to Jimmy called Sweetheart. And he said to me, you know, it's a it's a really good song, but it's not anything like you anything on the album. You guys want to be a rock band. And this is really a pop song and you might get pegged as a pop band. Because you sure you want to put that bullet in the gun? And I just said, load the gun. <laughs> mm-hmm. So, and he was right. You know, radio heard us and it became a top 10 single billboard. And But we were kind of pegged as this pop band and we would go out and play and nobody would recognize us because we're rocking out. And all of a sudden we play Sweetheart and they go, oh, that's who those guys are. <laughs> and so Sweetheart uh, became my first hit record back in 1981 with Frankie and the Knockouts. And then Without You, Not Another, Another Lonely Night became another hit for us, Top 20. And You're My Girl, Top 20 became our third hit. So Frankie and the Knockouts got established uh, with Millennium RCA Records. And uh, back in 84, 85, Jimmy decided... He was going to shut his label and go into films. And so he sold us to MCA. And so MCA said to me, listen, we want you to sound like Night Ranger. Oh, wow. And I said, why, why, why would you do that? <laughs> you already have Night Ranger on your label. No, we want you to sound like Night Ranger. So they brought Night Ranger's uh, producer in. And now I had just finished the record with Bill Schnee, who was like yeah. one of the top producers. Uh, I mean, I learned so much from Bill and they took Bill's record and they took a song off it called Outrageous, which was the heaviest song on the record and said, this is going to be your first single. And I said, bad move. Radio is not going to be ready for that. We can play it out, but don't make it our first single. They did. It didn't go anywhere and they dropped us. So here I am in 1985, 86, and I meet someone um, that I'm, I'm trying to get more records. I'm trying to get another record deal. And David Prater, I was in his studio in Montclair, and he turned me onto a track written by John D. Nicola. Ah. And that's where John and I met. And John, you might, might as well tell the story from here because I'm babbling on here. <laughs> Babylon. Um, yeah. Well, I was never in Frankie and the Knockouts, unless you want to call the writing period that Frank for, the, just for the fourth came. record. You were writing for that. We were writing record. for the fourth record, but I never played with Frankie. Although, as I told Frankie, and he was—he didn't know this—I I answered uh, an ad to be the bass player. They were looking for a bass player like years before. But uh, that never happened. But um, so yeah, so Frankie and I met. I was actually 
I, you can't call it yacht rock, but I, I put, a, I was on a record on Motown in 
really um, capitalize on that, we needed to move to L.A., which I wasn't too thrilled about, but we did. And um, that opened up that composing career and um, then also met this actor in his acting class in about 1983. Yeah, and, and it turned out we lived around the block from each other, and that was Patrick Swayze. And so oh, he, yeah. he and his wife and Wendy and I would hang out together. I mean, we lived two houses away from each other. And, um, and that led to us writing She's Like the Wind. And we, we squeak it in right under the Yacht Rock uh, timeline <laughs> because we actually wrote the song in 1984. There you go. Yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, the official years being 76 to 84. You are correct. You're very schooled in the Yacht Rock. Yeah. Uh, yes. facts and I, I recognize the name Wendy Frazier as soon as you said it, that obviously she is the uh, additional singer on that with Patrick. Yeah. Right? He, um, <laughs> We, we wrote the song for a, a different movie. We wrote it for Grandview USA. And the smart thing that we did was we did a really good demo of it with him singing it, Wendy singing on it. Uh, I programmed all the synth tracks, brought in a guitarist. And that's what Patrick played for the producers uh, uh, and director of Dirty Dan a couple of years later. Can't look in her eyes She's out of my league Just a fool to believe I have anything she needs She's like the wind and not that we need to validate anything, but if we felt like we needed to validate, um, two of the stations, the radio stations that were syndicated on, who are both pretty strict about sticking to the Yacht Rock rules, both play She's Like the Wind in their rotation. So there you they go. must consider it Yacht Rock. Yeah, they, they, they must you know, know the story behind this. They, they, they probably do. They're pretty schooled. Yeah, yeah and, it's, and I think nothing says Yacht Rock like a huge power ballad so uh that's part of it also yeah and i do know they play sweetheart as well yep that makes more sense it's more from the time but you know it's amazing about the the you know all of those songs how long of a life they've had how they've become so culturally important and you know i would almost argue that the soundtrack and those are the ones that really carry the soundtrack because a lot of the others were older tunes that had appeared elsewhere but that 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 you know, 30 some years later, still being relevant. Whereas the movie I read and I almost laughed because I, I saw it on Wikipedia and thought, well, it needed citation that the movie was intended for like a one or two week release and then straight to video that they had no real hope of any long life. And yet the soundtrack, what you guys did. They were, they were hoping, uh, Eleanor will tell the story, Eleanor Bergstein, who wrote the movie that, uh, the, some acne company was trying to you know, use it as a promo. And they thought that, you know, they'd be able to sell it to some kids here and there and then, you know, go right to VHS, VHS. We're really dating it. I believe they had, uh, they had done some porn movies, Vestron. And so when Jimmy Einer called me to write, you know, uh, for Dirty Dancing and I said to him, Jimmy, I'm really too busy. I'm trying to get another deal. And he goes, no, this is a good little movie. You know, I, I got to talk you into to writing something. I said, so what's the name of the movie? And he said, 
Dirty Dancing. And my hand went to my forehead and I said, Jesus, Jimmy's doing porn. Is that where you came up with Hungry Eyes then? I don't know. Hung, Hungry Eyes was written way before time in my life. Well, that's, that's the song we haven't mentioned yet. There's a third song on this soundtrack that has your fingerprints all over it as well. How did uh, The Time of My Life get going? That was the song that eventually they asked for. That's the song that Jimmy asked us to write. And so when I thought of somebody to write it with, I thought of John because of all this we were working together and we were writing some really, really strong music together. And I said, John, we have an opportunity. The good news is we get a chance here to write a song for a movie. The bad news is it's for the last scene. and It has to be seven minutes long because the last scene is seven minutes. So it's like, you got to write MacArthur Park, you know, seven minute pop song. Yeah. Well, I had a question about those. Stacy, you sort of mentioned it uh, in yours that you had a fairly flushed out demo of uh, She's Like the Wind. So, uh, but for the time of my life and Hungry Eyes, when you guys are presenting that, I guess you're presenting it more to the film team than an actual like music producer. Uh, so what is, how is that different? But also to what level were they flushed out? I know you mentioned getting uh, a drum machine in one of the other interviews that I read with you guys, but were they more flushed out or were they kind of like you go in and banged it out on piano for them to hear? I think a time of my life in Hungry Eyes were pretty flushed out. And, and if you were to hear those demos, you would hear pretty much the same kind of arrangement and groove and vocals uh, and harmonies. I mean, they're, they're pretty, they were pretty, so they were so flushed out that they actually filmed the movie to our demos. And you know, there was, uh, you know, th- the, the keyboard parts, you know, all, all that stuff was in there. And, and Michael Lloyd did a great job of, you know, reproducing and also adding what he to it. So, so it, it was uh, it was very fleshed out. In fact, um, you know, even the horn part. You know, the da 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 da. da we we had all that in there. So he he kind of just translated into real instruments. We had used uh, a drum machine, as you as you mentioned, because we were thinking 1987 dance. Everything, you know, everything was machine. So it's more than just songwriting you provided them with. You gave them the crux of an arrangement as well. Yeah. There was one string line, that da, 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 which is kind of a lift. They lifted themselves because it was a lift from a Righteous Brothers thing. Okay. Now, that was about, it was one of the only added, added pieces. Again, Michael did a wonderful job of, reproducing a lot of the parts we did that one string line and if what i understand it was gene page who did the orchestral um edition and i believe he also did the righteous brothers very clever very clever yeah yeah you know what's kind of cool though for for the especially for time of my life was here you have a movie that's depicting 1963 and then you have a 1987 pop song and how are you going to connect those eras and they did that very cleverly by having Bill Medley, who was from the Righteous Brothers. And that voice was the connecting thread through the eras, you know, Bill Medley and Jennifer Warren. So th- the voices helped connect the, the generational gap. And then was it, this is so on Yacht Rock, but was it the Black Eyed Peas then that did a version? <clears throat> the Dirty Bit. The Dirty Bit, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On the Dirty Dancing soundtrack alone... I, according to my notes, 55 million copies of that record sold, which you, I don't even know if you could do that nowadays. 
Have you guys tallied up as a group how many records you've sold with your fingerprints on something, and how many Grammys are we talking about in the room right now? I have zero. John has zero. But for you, that's easy math for us. Yeah, for me, I don't have again. The thrust of my work was more toward the composing side, and songwriting was a happy addition to that as it came up. So for me, it's like you know, I'm not. I was nominated for an Emmy. So, you know, so it's, it's, for that's a, a, one. Counts, that's yeah. a one. So, it, it's, so it, yeah, that, that's different. And then BMI is great because they do uh, these beautiful certificates when you hit a million airplays. So I've got one sitting across from me over there for it's uh, four millionth airplay on the radio. And uh, BMI calculated that if you play She's Like the Wind four million times in a row, It'll take about 29 years. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> well, what, you got something hanging behind you. Obviously, the folks can't see this, but it's some sort of uh, framed, uh, was it CDs? And uh, is that the the, the digital um, disc of the movie? Is that what, what is that? This, that's behind this you, is, Stacey. This is uh, the platinum album for U.S. sales. Uh, okay. R. For the soundtrack. Certified for the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. So okay. this is 11 million records represented. Yeah, but so. but worldwide they estimate anywhere from forty up to fifty five. Nobody really knows for sure, but it, it's a lot. Wow! And you should see the racks of gear behind John, folks. <laughs> Here's an analog <laughs> man. There. Courtesy of. So can can we just real quick? I know we're jumping timelines, but go back to the third album. You said Bill Snape produced that. Did he or engineer it? Uh, he engineered and produced it. Uh, it was called Making the Point. Uh, Frank in the knockouts Making the Point <clears throat> was a uh, two dice rolling. And um, he did a great job. There was a song on there that that I wrote to kind of replicate the same groove as Sweetheart. It was in 6-8. And uh, it was called Come Rain or Shine. And we had just toured, got off tour with Toto. So um, Bill had been good friends with all the band. And so he said, let's bring in Toto's drummer and, and play on Come Rain or Shine. So our drummer at that time was Tico Torres from Bon Jovi, who went on to be in Bon Jovi. And uh, so Tico was like, well, you know, uh, if we can have, uh, you know, I, I'm blanking on on uh, his name. Jeff Percaro. Jeff Percaro. Yeah, that's Yacht Rock Royalty right there, that guy. Wow. Yeah, so he played on Come Rain or Shine. Mm-hmm. And uh, if you go back to Frankie and the Knockouts, listen to that song and think now, oh, he wrote this with the next sweetheart in mind and thinking that Jeff is playing drums on it. Um, it it's just a really good take and feel. You know, the guy just had such a swing to his groove that, you know, just anything he played on, you know, became magical. Yeah, it's kind of that hold the line groove, sort of that 12-8 thing, that triplet feel that's so yeah, cool. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, Frankie, you mentioned 
you mentioned earlier your uh, R&B roots, and if you're not familiar with like what the true definition of Yacht Rock is, it should have those R&B elements, and I, definitely Sweetheart does. Obviously, if you got Jeff Picaro, you're going to have the, the, the Picaro groove, so that's automatically Yachty, as they say. Yeah. But a tune that I just discovered that I'm going to use as what we call a buried treasure is Without You, Not Another Lonely Night. That is as yachty as it gets, and that's just a jam. What record is that off? It's on the second album, um, Below the Belt, it's called. And um, it was an album we actually wrote on the road because we were touring so much. And so we would take songs that didn't really have lyrics. They just had like grooves and scat melodies. And we would get an encore and we go, let's do that song. And I go, but there's no lyrics. So just make up some, you know. Wasn't that your writing process anyway? You sort of jam out, you drop cassettes in your car and and jam out to them. Isn't that what I read somewhere? Yeah, well, you know, I found out many years later that's called top lining. And uh, so, you know, when John would send me a track or anybody I wrote with, it would be send me a track. And I listened to it. I put another cassette on in the room and I jam. And then sometimes phonetic sounds come out that are words. You know, what the hell am I saying? So basically the melody has to come first. And then these phonetic sounds help me maybe find where I'm going lyrically. And that's how I write every song. I I have to do one more reference to sort of bringing you into the Yacht Rock realm, which is something you co-wrote that I think was recorded by Earth, Wind & Fire, who is Yachty because of their connect. well, musically, and because of their connection with David Foster, John Nixon, would you yeah, say? Yeah, Bill Champlin, yeah. So yeah, uh, yeah. So one world. What that was written in eighty nine. Uh, it was um, right after the Academy Awards. Um, uh, this company BMI, uh, and along with uh, another guy, Scott. Um, I'm trying to remember Scott's last name. They put a, uh, a a writing summit together called Music Speaks Louder Than Words, and twenty five of us: Barry Mann, Mike Stoller, Cindy Lauper, Desmond Child. Diane Warren, Michael Bolton, 25 of us went to Moscow for nine days and we wrote with the top 25 songwriters. And so while we were there, we wrote these songs with interpreters. And there was this one blind Estonian who sat down at the piano and thought he was Ray Charles, you know, and he started singing and he had so much soul and everybody was like, well, we want to write with him. He's the guy we want to write with. And they said, well, you all can't write with circus. So we're going to put names in a hat. You pick out the so- out of the out of the hat. And that's who you're writing songs with. I lucked out and picked Sergey. And so Sergey, my, myself and Pamela Philip Olin and Mick Targa sat in a room and we wrote uh, One World. And um, so after nine days, we went home and Columbia Records picked 10 songs out of the 50 songs that were written. And I got two songs on that record, One World 
and another song I wrote with Cindy Lauper there called Cold Sky. So Earth, Wind and Fire recorded One World and they were gonna make it their first single, but Donnie Einer at that time just became part of Columbia. And he said, you know what? There's too many artists on here and it'll take away from Earth, Wind and Fire's next record. So we're gonna shelve this record. So that record was shelved. And so many, many, many years later, like last summer, I called up Pamela and I said, let's re-record One World. And so we did, we re-recorded it with John Gillitton producing it and Bill Schnee mixing it with all of these Grammy award winning singers, songwriters, people from, you know, that played with Toto and the keyboard player. And so we put the song out and we, we uh, made a charity. We went to different charities, the, the Musicians Foundation, the Actors Fund and Children of First Responders. So we have a little website called uh, OneWorldOurSong.com. And you can, you know, hear the song, donate a dollar to one of the charities, and you get a free download of the song. So we're, we're, we gave the song away, and it went out, uh, it went top 25 on AC. So we were, wow, great. yeah, we were able to get it out. And yeah. at the same time it was out, John D. Nicola re-recorded Hungry Eyes with him singing it. And he was 22 on the charts with Hungry Eyes. Jeez. <laughs> really? Yeah. This was all last year? You got to hear John. You got to hear oh. John's version of Hungry Eyes. It's killer. Billboard said in, in their article when they, they did a little story about it being number 22, and they said, uh, Dirty Dancing reliably... Uh, um, having top 30 songs you know, something to that effect yeah. 30 years later yeah. it's amazing yeah well we're talking about a lot of years later we're kind of getting we're into that modern more modern era so i wanted to ask i've been dying to ask stacy about um being the composer for film and tv and stuff that you've been doing um because that's kind of how i started doing music was doing com it ended up being more for commercials than anything else but um what have you been working on lately what uh from the scoring side, I'm, I'm actually not really that active in that arena anymore, just because I don't, I live in Nashville now. I mean, you can do work long distance, but one of the reasons I moved away from LA was to actually begin to separate from that end of the business because I saw scoring moving in a direction that I did not like with fees going down, deadlines getting even shorter. Um, lack of back end because of streaming and, and all of that. And all of those things that I kind of predicted came true. So I'm still, you know, actively doing songwriting. Um, I've also segued into a whole unexpected creative career, which is as a uh, fine art, black and white photographer, uh, doing street photography. And I have gallery representation. I had one man show almost a year, yeah, a little over two years ago. And I've, four of my pieces are in a gallery show right now, downtown Nashville. And seven of my pieces, six or seven have sold. So it's like I'm, I'm being collected now. So it's, uh, it's it, and it was totally unexpected. You probably never thought that 30 years ago. You'd be doing yeah, that, no, huh? not, wow. not at all. I mean, I, I. You know, it's basically I bought a better camera, went to Italy and took pictures of people in black and white. And that's it turned into a whole thing. You got the eye. Yeah. yeah. Wow. 
I had actually stopped songwriting for a little while because um, I felt like I was chasing the success of She's Like the Wind, which I realized was impossible. I needed to take a break from that mindset. So I concentrated back on the, the scoring work and everything that my agent for sent me out for, I got, including, you know, I, I did 21 movies of the week during that time. I did four documentaries for ABC, the, one of which I got nominated for. And, um, but in the late 90s, I started doing some co-writing again with some people in L.A., and including a, a mainstay of uh, Yacht Rock, a guy named Blaze Tosti, who wrote a Total Eclipse of the Heart for, uh, for Rick Springfield, or co-wrote mm -hmm. it Danny Tate. <laughs> and um, uh, Blaze and I wrote the end title song for Pocahontas 2 together. And then we were doing some other stuff. And I played some new songs for Michael Lloyd. And because I knew one thing about Michael that's great is he is brutally honest. And creative people need brutally honest but constructive people in their lives and he's one of them and he said you know these songs are great you should start going to nashville to write with people and i said i don't know anybody in nashville and he says well bmi is there william morris is there your william morris client you'll meet people and and i did and that led to me moving about two years later when somebody made an offer on my house in Malibu that I could not turn down. Well, before we let you go, I want to find out what Frankie's up to now, but I, I have to, my favorite factoid, well, maybe not my favorite, one of my top three favorite factoids in researching the three of you, uh, it was completely unrelated to, to Yacht Rock, but one of you discovered and recorded Maroon 5, which came out of the, John Dinacola. How did that happen? Yeah, um... Really talented kids. Um, I was working with a guy named Tommy Allen, who was my partner in a production um, team. And we had done a few records together. And he moved to Malibu. I was still in New York. And he was walking along the beach. And he heard this band playing in a garage. And um, he said, John, we got to get these guys in the studio. They're awesome. And uh, it was a four-piece band called Kara's Flowers at that point. Um, same guys, though, that went on to become Maroon 5. Um, and we just dragged them into the studio, did a whole record. Uh, spent a, many months in, in L.A. Uh, while my son was born in here in New York. And um, but uh, Much heavier sounding uh well, it was, uh, they were, they were, I don't know if I call it heavy, but yes, it was rock. It wasn't as R&B-ish uh, uh, is what it became, but it, I, I knew right away. Uh, and, and Adam does give me the, uh, give us the, uh, when asked on The Voice, uh, at one point they, they were asking, what was your, you know, turn chair turning time for you? And, and he said, well, I have to give that to, you know, John and Tommy, that, that they were the first ones to, you know, turn their chair for me and, and the band. And, um, you know, they were, you knew right away Adam had it. Did anything off that record make its way to songs about Jane? No. Or was it that a, yeah, it was all, all new? new. Okay. Uh, they did, you know, put the, put a record out uh, on Warner Brothers as Kara's Flowers and and those songs, a few of the songs made it to that, but that, that didn't get off the ground. It, it was, uh, they broke up and then they reformed and added 
that other guitar. So it was the same four as Kara's flowers, added another guitarist. But in the meantime, they came to the East Coast and went to school at Five Towns College uh, and were influenced more with the R&B kind of thing. And, and really, uh, Adam's voice was probably a little more, it uh, wasn't quite as suited for a, a rock thing. It, they were kind of doing a silver chair. Uh, you know, while we were recording that record, silver chair came out. And so we said, oh, well, we're right in that ballpark. We should be good, you know. And Frankie, what about you? What does the present and future hold for Frankie, whether with or without knockouts? So um, I do a, a bunch of different charity things, some with John, those demos that we talked about that they filmed the movie to. There's a, a Facebook page called Dirty Dancing Demos that we sell those and we raise money for pancreatic cancer. And we've raised about 30000 for them in the past 25 years. Um, I also do this uh, new production called Taylor Simon King, which is James Taylor, Carly Simon, Carol King. And it's a celebration of their music. And we filmed it. And what we do is um, we hook up with different charities, Alzheimer's, uh, the First Responders Children Foundation, and a new one that's coming out on September 9th. It's called Shy Wolf for, for the Animals. And... Um, for $15, you donate $15 and you get to watch this show, Taylor Simon King, with some interviews in between some songs. And uh, the singing is unbelievable. The songs are, you know, historic. Um, they walk down baby boomer memory lane, you know. So it, it is quite a uh, show. The last three or four shows have sold out at the first, first one in 22 minutes. It's a, it's a really good, they'd be playing like the Count Basie and Red Bank and Carter Red Theater. And uh, September 15th, we're actually, the Count Basie hired us to play this outdoor festival in uh, Eatontown at the uh, Sun Eagle Country Club. It's September 15th. And so that that's uh, more shows that we have coming up. But we like to do it and connect it with charities and, uh, you know, give back. And I think that's a good way to, Give back and also brand yourself and, you know, people hear you, but yet you're doing something that, uh, you know, helping other people is a big thing because uh, John and I and Stacy have been blessed. Let's put it that way. Amen. That's very cool. And um, go ahead, John. Oh, I was going to say, I, I actually just released last week the first song from my sophomore effort as a solo artist. Uh, who knew? But uh, uh, it's called She Said, and it's from uh, the album She Said, which will be out in November. But uh, Americana, um, what is it? Americana Highways just did a review on the, the single. And so that's, uh, that's coming out. And, uh, we're releasing a second song, and then the record will come in November. November. Okay. Great. Wow. Cool. Great. Well, we'll uh, put that in the show notes, too. Go ahead, Stacy. Two covers of She's Like the Wind are coming out this uh, summer. So really, yeah. Um, awesome. It's, it's had a life away from the original, um, you know, back in 2006, uh, a, a German group called Vibe Kings did a hip hop version of it with a guy named Malik singing it. And that went to number two in Germany. So it did very well. But I uh, found out there's a, a Norwegian singer named Annie, Annie Strand, who's based in Berlin. She just did a fantastic cover of it. Um, it was sent to me to preview 
And I got in touch with her um, through Facebook and I just got a lovely note back from her today uh, saying how much the song means to her and how much it means to her that I reached out to her to let her know what, not only that I liked it, but also Lisa Swayze uh, loved it. So, um, so it's great, you know, to see people's reinterpretations of something that we created, you know, quite a while ago. And that's part of the, the blessing that, that Frankie mentioned as well, that we're, we're blessed also just, it's like we created these organic, um, these organisms that we threw out into the world that then take on a life of their own outside anything that we could have possibly imagined. By the way, I just watched last night from the beginning to the end, Dirty Dancing. And uh, boy, it holds up, I have to say. Really? You know, Jennifer, Jennifer Gray, she's so natural on the screen. Patrick, of course, I don't think anybody else could have done that part, you know, pull off this macho dance king, you know, that it just, they don't almost don't go together, but it, you know, it worked. But, uh, you know, it's one of those things I, my test is always, you watch a movie a few times and you go, do they now seem like they're reading a script or do they still seem natural? And I have to say, I was even more, I, I don't know. I, you know, through the years, you, you, you catch pieces of it here and there. You, you, you don't sit down and watch it from the beginning to the end. You guys should do it. I'm, I'm telling you. Right. And, you know, uh, Stacy, my wife, Deborah, was like, God, she's like the wind totally captures the feeling that's conveyed on the screen there when they're standing in front of the car and, and, you know, it has that, you know, that just it pulls on your heartstrings, you know? So really. But that's what, that's why this movie became a phenomenon because all of those songs married that film and, and, it, and the actors, you know, take out one of the elements of take out Patrick, take out Jennifer, take out the songs you don't have the same phenomenon. Little did I know when I was in a cover band in 1989 and we were learning She's Like the Wind. No way. Some, yeah, <laughs> we, used to, we used to do She's Like the Wind. Little did I know I'd someday be talking to the songwriter, or songwriters. In my first year of college, I had a roommate who became a guitar player, this guy, Mark. And uh, when I was living in L.A., he was living in L.A. and he got in touch with me one day out of the blue and he had married his college sweetheart, Anita, and he was playing a wedding and the requested first song was She's Like the Wind. So he went and he bought cheat music and he opened it up and he saw my name. And so he called Anita over, as he told me later, and he said, do you think it's the, and she said, do you think it's the same one? And his comment was, God wouldn't be cruel enough to make two of them. <laughs> <laughs> Well, that's probably a good place to wrap. So Frankie, John, and Stacy, thank you. This was great. I have a, one last dumb question, though, because I think I know the answer, but, you know, there's no such thing as dumb questions. It won't be your last dumb question. But... Just dumb podcasts. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Um, have the three of you ever, have I missed it? Or have the three of you ever collaborated together on one thing? Not yet. Not yet. Not yet. No. There you go. The, t the time has arrived. <laughs> it could and should. Good. Well, good luck with that. We will keep our eyes and ears open for all that, plus all the work that you're doing now. We have singles coming out, sounds like albums coming out, covers of classics coming out. We wish you guys all the luck. Thanks again for being on Out of the, out of the Main. Thanks for having us.
Well, that was uh, a lot more informative than even I uh, banked on. And I had the show yeah, notes. That, that was more <laughs> than I expected. I, that was really great. I love digging into songwriting. We haven't really hit on that a lot. And I love that those guys are doing charitable stuff. I mean, Frankie could not stop talking about his charities. And I think that is really, really great. I did want to make one correction, I think. Um, I would have to look it up, but I'm going to go out on a limb. When he was mentioning the songwriter that wrote something for Rick Springfield, he said Total Eclipse of the Heart, and I believe he meant State of the Heart. Ah, yes, right. Because uh, Total Eclipse of the Heart was Bonnie Tyler. And I know that that was actually originally written and intended to go to Air Supply. That's right. So we said that it sold 55 million uh, worldwide, the Dirty Dancing soundtrack. Uh, went to number one on the Billboard 200 album chart for 18 weeks, 18 weeks in a row at number one. And then 230 weeks, that's, that's like almost five years Yeah, something like in the that. top 30. Come on, man. I know. Come on, come on man. Yeah, that's, uh, well, that's what you always say, though. It's songwriting. Songwriting, <sighs> songwriting baby. baby. Yeah, It's melody. Melody. Cool. Yeah, really interesting to focus on songwriting. I agree. Well, shall we lightning round? Yes. Well, since we're talking about songwriters, I decided to, at least on one of mine, connect it in the way that I'm going to the probably the greatest single American popular songwriter that we have today. In terms of somebody who's... Pri- Ooh, today. Yeah. Well, I mean, somebody who's primarily known as a songwriter, not like a Bob Dylan who wrote a bunch of iconic songs and also performed them, but somebody who's pretty much known as a songwriter Though he has done records. Jimmy Webb. You familiar with Jimmy Webb? I don't think so, but I'm sure I'm familiar with his work. Uh, yeah. he uh, A lot of the early Glenn Campbell stuff. So by the time I get to Phoenix, Wichita Lineman, Galveston. But he also wrote Up, Up, and Away for Fifth Dimension. He wrote MacArthur Park, which uh, Frankie mentioned. Um, still within the sound of my voice. Easy for you to say. Legendary songs by Linda Ronstep. I mean, this guy is a songwriter's songwriter. But he did an yes. album. In 1982, and if it's 1982, what do you do? You get all the yacht cats together, right? You get That's right. You get Bill Schnee to mix it. We have Bob Glob on bass. We have Jeff Percaro on drums. We have Lukather on guitar and David Foster on keys. So I got to ask you what your thoughts are on this one from Jimmy Webb called "God's Gift." I don't stop thinking you. It's Yacht E. Yeah. You can hear all those guys influencing it. Yeah. Yep. I'm torn on whether it completely floats my boat. I love it. I can tell just from, that's the first time I've heard it. So I only have heard a little bit of it, but I love it. Um, do you, are you suggesting it maybe does not float the boat or shouldn't? Probably not. It's probably just below the bar. Jimmy Webb's singing and voice don't really carry it enough. He, he kind of has a little bit of a... Um, different sound to his voice that, for whatever reason, doesn't take it into yacht for me. The rest of the guys are all doing the do, but um, yeah. yeah. So, would you say it's just a bit outside? Just a bit outside. Well, I can tell you from the album cover, he is smoking a cigarette. However, he looks very comfortable. He does. So, he that's does. probably why he's. It's just outside. Well, because by then he had written all those tunes for. Glenn Campbell, and he was rolling in the dough. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and he was rolling his own cigarettes, it looks like, here from the cover. I, probably. Eddie. Well, we're, real quick, yes. check out who else is on that album. If you care to check out the album, 1982 Angel Heart, 
So beyond the guys that I mentioned in that one, you also have David Page, Lee Sklar, Leah Kunkel, Graham Nash, Michael McDonald, Kenny Loggins, Stephen Bishop, Dean Parks, Valerie Carter, Victor Feldman, and Jerry Beckley from America. So wow. apparently he was well thought of to get all those cats. I guess so. Probably uh, they all owe him a favor probably for writing exactly. hit songs. Right? Yes. All right. Well, I'm going to ask you if it floats your boat. Um, I'm going to guess the Melissa Manchester. Is that who does? Uh, you should hear how she talks about you, right? Yes. Have you ever heard the Charlie Dore version? I don't even know who Charlie Dore is. Nor did I, but uh, a guy by the name of Daniel Cronin in the Facebook group posted this version of You Should Hear How She Talks About You. love it when they go to a key change for the chorus you know <laughs> people who aren't yachty but, but 1975 it it oh, well man. let me tell you guess who's on this that version is uh jeff Picaro, mike Picaro, steve lukather now wow. you may now you may render your judgment I, the only reason i well first of all this is awesome find by daniel cronin it is i, I think it's yachtier than the original well maybe this is the original this would be earlier yeah yeah than the melissa manchester version um and the fact that it had that personnel so it's still it's a year too early to be technically on the boat but and i just found it a little bit yachtier i know it has a lot of the sounds it does man the, the layered synths and stuff on top of the piano is very reminiscent of Michael Amardian's uh, approach, again, even though this is early. Mm-hmm. Wow, I really like that. I don't know if I can declare it yacht, but I really like it. Yeah. Well, it goes on my list as we speak. Yeah, I just did. All right. Well, I already alluded to what my uh, buried treasure is because I'm going back to uh, a song that I had did not know about before I started researching Frankie and the Knockouts because I was familiar with Sweetheart. But going back to the tune that I love, and that is Without You, Parenthetically, not another lonely night. And he's got some range in his voice, doesn't he? Those yeah. harmonies that come in on the chorus, and he jumps up the register. That's solid. Yeah. That's one of those really tempo y kind of smooth grooves. A little it. more West Coasty AOR than I would call it Yachty. I know that's not what you're asking me. But I if you're calling you it a buried treasure, thing. that means, yeah. <laughs> yes. It's a tune that deserves to be unburied. Yes. The treasure. What do you got for buried treasure? I don't even remember what it was I was looking up, but I happened to be on the Yachtsky scale and. I did not expect to see the Carpenters on there. There was actually a Carpenters tune on there, rated a 61. So it's not like it barely got in. So I do obviously go check it out. And you know what? There's a lot of yachtiness in this. And this is from 1981. The Carpenters called, and this has a parenthetical want you back in my life again. It's 
got a uh, you should hear vibe to it. Yeah, <laughs> the, the, the you, you, uh, yeah you should hear the doobie bounce uh, vibe. Very doobie bounce. Um, it was since we're talking songwriters. It was written by Carrie Chater and Chris Christian, who was a name I did not know until probably yesterday when people started posting his stuff. So, a couple yachty related songwriters on that. Yeah, I'll say. Yeah. Well, I have a Carpenters off the map. Oh, wow. So I buried treasure, so I'm going to connect it with this one. I've been holding this one for a while because uh, it, it it's close. It's close. I'm not. It's not there in terms of Yachty, but it's close. And it's got uh, Joe Osborne on bass, Ed Green on drums, Ray Parker Jr. on guitar. The tenor sax solo is Tom Scott. Um, but it's worthy of an off-the-map suggestion for possibly adding it to your playlist if you like to stretch your list beyond Yacht Rock. And this is from 1977. All you get from love is a love song. Oh, it's a dirty old shame when all you get from love is a love song. It's got you laying up nights just waiting for the music to start. I will say, interestingly, the first song on that album, she does a, or they, the Carpenters, do a cover of a Michael Frank song called Buana She No Home. So obviously they were connected to the idea of that whole style because they're doing a Michael Frank tune called Buana She No Home. And it's so weird because it's totally produced and sung like Michael Frank's. It doesn't sound at all like the Carpenters. So worthy of checking that one out as well as a bonus. Right. And it validates the buried treasure that you had earlier. Yes. It proves that they were going for the yacht sound. Yeah, exactly right. Well, for my buried treasure, I got somebody who was not going for the yacht sound at all. It's way off the map. So off the map, it's 2021. Oh, my. It's in just last week. It was released on August 27th. By now, you should know where I'm going with this. One of my favorite songwriters of all time. It's not Yachty at all. It doesn't matter. I can still like him. Glenn Phillips, who mm-hmm. is the lead singer of Toad, and I think he's a brilliant lyricist. Um, I think he's a brilliant, what, melodist, mm-hmm. uh, so- songwriter. Again, not Yachty, but they put out, they're still making music to this day. You might remember from the 90s. They just had an album that just came out. What makes this even close to the map is my worlds collided when I fired up the new single, and it was Toad the Wet Sprocket featuring Michael McDonald. Here's the best of me. Oh, she says, How does that connection even happen? Wow. I, know, I do know Glenn Phillips lives out in L.A. I'm assuming, you know, Michael still's out there, I guess. Yep, yep. that's got to be it. Well, it's funny you ask that because what I think, there's, there's, there's a weird yacht vibe going on this new Toad album, which I won't bore people with. But I think because Yacht Rock is so on everybody's radar screen now, I bet all these guys are getting session calls left and right and left and right. We know Kenny is. We know, you know, they all are. Yes. So it doesn't, it doesn't have to be yachty to get a call. True. I think you got it right there. All right. Again, all you got to do is write a good song. Right. And for that, we thank Frankie, Stacy, John, you, me, Ahoy. Poloy. 